From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what to look for in the new year, the stories GreenBiz reporters are tracking in 2017, the producers of a hit TV show tell how to revolutionize climate change storytelling, and the four horsemen of the climate apocalypse. It's a year of living dangerously, this week on 350. It's January 6, 2017. Welcome to our first episode of GreenBiz 350 in the new year. I'm Joel McCower, and with me here in GreenBiz Studio is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren, happy new year and happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I can't lie. It's a little bit of a weird one this year. A little trepidation, but I think things will be, they'll shake out. It'll oh, be you don't want to talk to me about big big birthday numbers or anything like that. So you're doing just great. Um, but uh, did you have a good holiday? Yeah, I'm fresh off a trip to the heartland. I was in Columbus, Ohio, where I saw some actual snow. Very wholesome. What about you? Did you stick around? I stuck around. Yeah, the uh, the old staycation. I hate that word. I don't know why I said that. But um, uh, <laughs> yeah, stuck around, and uh, which I'll try to do is you know at least every other year, just not to travel when everybody else uh, is. And we had a fine, fine holiday here. And you know, movies, walks, home projects, uh, naps. Mm, <laughs> you know, naps. a little bit of work just to sort of stay up on things. And there was, you know. It's not like the news stopped over the holidays here. It's not like the good old days when things kind of quieted down. This is a very happening time in the world and uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world. So there was plenty to keep track of. And, uh, you know, that's what we'll be doing here all year. But let's start with this week in review. So I think this week in review is actually a little bit of a year in review slash a look at the year ahead. We've had some great coverage from our columnists like David Crane, who I know you connected with, Joel, we'll get to that in a minute, but also some really great rundowns of cool emerging technologies that sort of took root in 2016 and things that uh, corporate executives steeped in the world of sustainability are looking at for the year ahead. Yeah, we had this uh, three-part series over the holidays by Shauna Rappaport and Elaine Shea, the two principals behind the programming of our Verge conferences, talking to some of the people in our Verge ecosystem, uh, companies from think tanks, uh, academics, and others about what are they looking at, what are they thinking about for the new year. And, you know, it kind of all boils down to to three topics as far as I can see. Number one with a bullet is uh, energy, uh, renewable energy in particular, and how companies uh, particularly will be buying more of that and what does it take for companies to ramp up and you know, really looking at, at how far the renewable energy world has come in the past year as it seems to have come every year to some new remarkable level. So that's one piece of it. Um, two is data. Uh, you know, we we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in in the program in terms of some of the stories that that we're all tracking. But you know, data seems uh, and how it gets reported and what the impact is on investors and and how all of that plays out is 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 pretty interesting. And and connected to all that is uh, literally <laughs> is the Internet of Things. How this is really starting to become. Uh, a factor, mostly good, but not all, not all of it, um, 
in terms of being able to optimize everything and, and really bring us to new levels of efficiency. Yeah, and in terms of the things that folks steeped in this world of sustainable technologies are looking at, Laura Schul, who's the founder and CEO of Streetlight Data, I thought made a good point when she she suggested looking at energy issues within the framework of true grid parity. So this cost competitiveness between coal, natural gas, and renewables, um, which is comes down, it changes a lot from place to place, state to state. And I think um, sort of getting the local math right is going to be increasingly important under the Trump administration when obviously national energy policy is a bit of a question mark right now. And then there was the uh, CSO world. What are chief sustainability officers thinking about uh, for 2017? And we had... Uh, our colleague, GreenBiz uh, Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies, who runs the GreenBiz Executive Network, uh, poll or survey some of his, uh, uh, his the members of that group, of, all from big companies, to find out what are they thinking about. One common thread I saw, um, especially with folks like Keith Kenny, who's the VP of Global Sustainability for McDonald's, and Patrick Flynn, the Director of Sustainability for Salesforce, seems to be this idea of taking a step back for companies that have had sustainability programs in-house for several years now and really honing in on some key material issues or thinking about um, going, we, we talk about this phrase a lot, but going from doing less environmental harm to actually driving positive change. Um, and so th- I know this is something we've been talking about a-, a lot in our story planning for the year ahead as well, is this concept of sort of getting out of the box a little bit in 2017, looking at new companies, companies at different stages in their sustainability journeys, um, and seeing where people are pushing the envelope. And one part of that uh, outside the box has to do with social impacts of, of sustainability, which uh, Alexis Ludwig Vogan, who's the director of corporate responsibility and sustainability at Best Buy, talked about in this article. Uh, you know, how do we put more of an emphasis on social issues? How do we, uh, whether it's the workforce or communities where companies operate? Um, uh, and and sometimes it's uh, constituencies that aren't ne- necessarily directly touched by companies, uh, but uh, become part of their customer base, perhaps. And I think that's something you know we've we've talked and, and we'll continue to talk about the sustainable development goals. In fact, we just had a piece this week by senior writer Barbara Grady about how those are starting to be implemented uh, by companies. And uh, I just think we will be seeing this this continued mashup of of environmental sustainability with the social piece. Definitely. And though there is a lot to look forward to in the year ahead, I think we did also have a really important reality check from our editor-at-large, David Crane, uh, who is the senior operating executive for Pegasus Capital Advisors, former CEO of NRG Energy. He published a column to start out the new year with the not-so-optimistic headline, Meet the Four Horsemen of the Climate Apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, the four horsemen of the climate apocalypse that he's referring to are all Trump appointees. Uh, Rex Tillerson at the State Department, uh, of course, the CEO of Exxon, Scott Pruitt at the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, current uh, attorney general for the state of Oklahoma, and uh, very big uh, sort of part of suing the EPA and very big on the fact that EPA should be, or environmental protection should be left to the states. Uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry at, at Department of Energy, and one person who I don't think has officially been named, but Tom Thomas Pyle, who is the president of the Institute for Energy Research and its advocacy arm, the American Energy Alliance, 
Uh, and um, I think more for his credentials uh, in this administration was uh, vice president of of, of a Koch Brothers based or funded um, uh, organization and a registered lobbyist for Koch Industries and served as the Koch Industries director of public uh, federal affairs in the early 2000s. So um, this is what um, uh, David Crane calls the, the the four horsemen and and basically uh, you know apocalyptic literally terms uh, talks about really how uh, dire this seems at, at some levels for uh, um, climate change and, and renewable energy. So I I call him up to talk to him a little bit about this. Um, here's what he had to say. David Crane, first of all, happy New Year. Oh, happy New Year to you, Joel. So you were pretty out there on your uh, politics over the past year. You wrote a piece in uh, just before the election around Halloween called hashtag I'm with her uh, very clearly on on Hillary's uh, team. And then um, also you wrote a piece just after the election called Let's Give Trump a Chance saying, you know, maybe maybe this can uh, not be as bad as it seems. But now you're sort of saying it's maybe as bad as it seems uh you this four horsemen of the climate apocalypse tell me about uh what you're thinking and feeling and what you're seeing out there well i mean the, the disappointment and it's not really disappointment yet in the new administration since they haven't even taken office but my sense of looking at donald trump from afar is that he's going to be a delegator type president in the in the mold of I mean, the way Ronald Reagan worked the office as opposed to Jimmy Carter, you know, involved in every last detail. And so his appointments are very important. And uh, and as the piece said, I think that if you believe in doing something about climate, the, the combination of who he put at EPA and Department of Energy and, and uh, state in terms of the Paris Accord and then the people on the transition team, it's, it's, it's about as... It's about as disappointing as it could get. Well, if you look at the energy side of things, and you're the, obviously the former CEO of NRG, uh, there's so much momentum going on in renewable energy these days, uh, solar and wind, and and even your your former company uh, has uh, just modeled this. Um, I demonstrated this uh, coal, uh, this carbon capture technology outside of Houston. So there, there's a lot taking place that's driven by the market. Do you think the new administration can upend that? Well, just to use the example you just gave, the carbon capture project that NRG did outside of Houston was in no way driven by the market. It was driven by a $175 million grant from the Department of Energy. Um, so I think that... The, the administration very much can upend it. The thing is, when it comes to energy uh, policy, a broad swath of Republicans and Democrats, uh, it, it, politicians, including Governor Perry, adhere to an all-the-above strategy. But, but the devil's in the details in terms of how they're implemented. And for Democrats, all-the-above tends to be solar and geothermal for Democrats and oil and gas for Republicans. I can't help but notice that that some of the biggest wind installations are taking place in, I guess, red states. For example, just a week or so after the uh, election, uh, Google opened one of its biggest, newest data centers and the wind farm to power it in 
uh, Oklahoma, which is, of course, Jim Imhoff's, Senator Imhoff's state, uh, the man who famously said that climate change is the greatest hoax ever perpetuated in the American public. Uh, there's, I think, Facebook and, and maybe some others have wind farms in Iowa. Is there something that's possibly taking place here that could begin to tip the politics by just making this such a job creator in uh, red states that it becomes a must-have? Uh, one would think that that were, were true, uh, yet if you look across the wind belt of the country, it, it remains as rep- reliably Republican and uh, politically climate change denying as it's ever been. Yet the fact that this this great new industry has, has arisen, uh, I think it's really the biggest new industry in that part of the country in, in a long time. Yet it, if you look at the last election results, it doesn't seem to have change the politics of that sector at all, which is something that I find baffling. The other aspect of that is obviously that's a farming area, and and farmers know full well better than anyone else the way that the weather is changing. So, so, uh, but it it hasn't crossed over into uh, um, a lot of uh, pro uh, doing something about climate change politicians coming out of that area. So what would you like to see the corporate community do, uh, particularly not just sustainability executives, all of them as well, but but senior management, uh, the C-suite in terms of should they be you know, stepping up and speaking up on this? I mean, there's so many other issues around minimum wage and and uh, immigration and so many other issues. Is this something that you, we should be expecting uh, the C-suite being heard from uh, over the next few months? I think they will and they have on the advocacy side. The, the most progressive C-suite leaders are already saying that the election of Donald Trump doesn't change the course they're on. And I think even people who are more quiet about it will also stay on the same course because um, long-term planning in the corporate world is at least a five to 10-year cycle, if not beyond in some industries. And so they're not going to be particularly phased by one four-year uh, administration sort of stepping back. So people will stay on the same course, and the people who are outspoken will stay outspoken. The point in my article, though, was that while I'm a big believer that the corporate sector can lead, there's there's clearly after this last election cycle a large group of the population that doesn't want to listen to the people who've done well in the status quo situation. So we need to cast the net wider and um, and sort of the two sets of allies that we had before, one is the environmental NGOs, which are which are great in terms of anchoring the left wing of the movement, but but they also are not listened to by the people that we need to persuade. And then there's the military, and I think the military was great on climate, but I think they will have difficulty being a federal agency um, in the next four years. So you have to look at the medical community, which represents 21, 22% of the GDP, the faith-based community, and uh, and the educational sector to to be an ally that can cut across the population. And so I guess I would like to see a, more, a lot more coalition building than individual CEOs just sort of going out and saying, yes, my company's going to become zero carbon between now and 2050, which is... Uh, which is something they all should be doing, but I don't think it's enough. So what would you like to see 
from the new administration. What would be a sign of hope for you in terms of uh, an action that they took or maybe didn't take uh, or some other position that would say, okay, maybe going back to your November 14th piece, um, you know, maybe we should give them a chance. Maybe this won't be uh, the climate apocalypse. Well, between the two things that they can do right away, one would be reaffirm the EPA's clean power plan. The other is to reaffirm American commitment to the Paris Accord. I think the one that's much easier for them to do uh, and more likely is just reaffirm the Paris Accord. I, I don't see any chance that they can go back on some of the things that were said during the campaign about the clean power plan. But the combination of Secretary of State Tillerson and, and uh, reaffirming the Paris Accord, I think that's possible, but that's not sufficient because it, it would just breed cynicism if they reaffirm the Paris Accord, but then do absolutely nothing uh, to to bring about, uh, to comply with American commitment to it. So uh, from there, I think the action shifts to the, to the Department of Energy and We'll see Governor Perry. I mean, he could continue like the transition team and doing a witch hunt to try and find out which members of the department worked on climate change. Or he could get out there and say, we really are going to have a balanced approach and we're going to try and get the carbon out of fossil fuels and we're going to promote renewables. And so I think the body language uh, from both state and energy are the most important thing in the first couple of months. Well, lots more to watch on this, and we'll check in with you uh, occasionally during 2017. Um, thanks so much for keeping that uh, activist flame alive, and it's uh, I know one that needs to burn brightly this year, so uh, we'll be talking more about this. David Crane, thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Joe. We're all in this together. So what does Matt Damon have to do with climate change? Might not be a typical topic for this podcast, but we're going to turn now to the world of show business and the National Geographic series Years of Living Dangerously. Our associate editor, Anya Holomizer, actually took a look at this series and what it could possibly mean for sustainability storytelling in her piece, How to Revolutionize Climate Change Storytelling. So Anya, give us a little bit of the background here. What does the series Years of Living Dangerously, which featured our own editor David Crane, also celebrities like Jack Black, Arnold Schwarzenegger was an executive producer. What can that teach us about effective storytelling, in particular sort of this gloom and doom context that sustainability and climate change often has to overcome? Great questions, Lauren, and ones that can't be answered uh, in just one article one episode um, by one person. And I think that is why uh, Joel Bach and David Gelber, who are the creators, co-creators and executive producers of Years of Living Dangerously, tried to answer in the show. And the show airs on National Geographic Channel, just wrapped its second season. And the show brings together celebrities, like the ones that you mentioned, with politicians and business people and people on the ground around the world who are actually impacted by climate change and tells this very multifaceted story from many different points of view. 
So I interviewed Joel Bach for my article, and he talked about the interesting stories that came up that he didn't expect to cover when they started the show. And yes, doom and gloom, climate change, storytelling is kind of the norm we hear about, you know, melting glaciers, drowning polar bears, forest fires, and those things are definitely true and those things are happening as a result of climate change. But it kind of it can turn people off. I think that that's one of the re- one of the challenges for journalists covering climate change. And what he said was that uh, what Joel Bach said was that on the show there there are the doom and gloom aspects and there are some really difficult stories like people who are losing their homes, the amount of climate migrants that are we're, we're going to have to deal with, that the whole world is going to have to learn to, to deal with, and other issues like species die-offs are very depressing and they may even affect human populations in the future. But at the same time, they found stories that were very uplifting. For example, there is a story in season two where Bradley Whitford covered the citizen climate lobby, which tries to get Republicans to act on climate and often successfully. So there's a uh, about as much good good leadership and bold leadership on climate that is effective. That is also a balance, acts as a balance to all of the negative and gloomy news stories that we're he- hearing. Both of those are true. Both of them hold equal weight. And you know the narrative is playing out in front of our in front of our eyes. So which narrative ends up winning in the end is entirely up to us. And here's a clip of Joel speaking about the doom and gloom aspect of climate change storytelling. The fact of the matter is, it's the, the news is pretty bad when it comes to climate change. Uh, we did a story in season two on the impact that climate change is having on animal populations around the world, especially in Africa, and. You know, we reported that in the next 10 to 15 years as a result of poaching, but also I think mainly as a result of climate change, it's likely that there will be no more elephants left in Africa. And you think, well, that's horrible, and that's uh, you can't think of anything sadder than that. But then we then Asif Manvi, who is the correspondent of that story, he then learns that when you lose the large mammals like elephants and rhinos and hippos, there are all these horrible consequences. You think, oh, it's, it's, it's actually worse than just losing those animals, which is a tragedy in and of itself. What happens is you get a rise of diseases and pestilence, and the kind of which could actually threaten us as human beings. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't get any darker or gloomier than that to learn that we're wiping out all these big animals and we're potentially imperiling our own species in, in the process. Um, the, same, the same can be said for the story that Tom Friedman did of, of African migrants, climate migrants, who are fleeing the continent because the conditions in which they normally can grow crops just don't exist anymore. And, you know, Tom learned that by the end of the century, it's expected that 60 million people will have to flee Africa. Well, if we can't handle a million Syrian refugees then what are we going to do when 60 million Africans have, have, are, are desperate and have nowhere to go and have to find a new home? And it's because of what the West has done in terms of with regard to climate change. So there's that, the ocean story where we talk about the, the disappearing of all the, the coral reefs and the, and the amount of seafood that that will imperil and the hundreds of millions of people who rely on that food. 
I mean, it's, this is this is really gloomy stuff, right? So we didn't we didn't shy away from any of it because it's unfortunately this these stories are playing out and these are realities that are coming at us hard and fast. Um, so there really isn't any story that I would steer away from. If it's a story that's worth telling, you know, we'll tell it and we'll try to tell it. So avoiding being a Debbie Downer is definitely one sort of thing to keep in mind here. But another aspect of sustainability that I think uh, often comes to the fore in corporate sustainability in particular is this concern about preaching to the choir. The already converted who think renewable energy is immensely promising uh, and and maybe not reaching some of the skeptics. I know these are things that the series in general took on, um, but what did you glean about that element? I personally think that preaching to the choir isn't necessarily always a bad thing because you do need to galvanize your, you know, your force and uh, further educate people who are already awakened and open to the concept of climate change, how it is affecting every aspect of our lives and how it will affect our lives in the future. But also these people can make great spokespeople to further educate those who are still skeptical about it. For example, there is an episode uh, where Jack Black spoke to reinsurers about Miami flood risks. So it's not exactly preaching to the choir, although it is that episode did utilize people who were measuring the impacts of climate change. But the show is able to confront people and developers in Florida who are completely ignoring the issue I think that Joel Bach will do a little bit of a better job explaining how we can stop uh, stop living in our bubbles of information and reach out to, to more people. So here's, uh, here's him talking about that. If you look back in November of 2013, 21% of Democrats said that this should be a priority for the president and Congress. And then in, and then in 2013, 14, after season one aired, it was up to 26%. Then it went up to 29%. And now it's up at 39%. Um, so from 21% to 39% is pretty good. That's among Democrats. It's gone from, for independents, it's gone from 16% up to 22%. For Republicans, it's gone from 7% down to 6%, but that's not that huge a drop. Um, and, you know, what it tells me is, and this is something we've really really wrestled with, which is, you know, do you try to galvanize the base or do you try to, you know, by preaching to the choir or do you try to win people over from the other side of the aisle? And I, I don't think we have a clear consensus on this, but, you know, what what we're seeing is that the base is getting much more, is getting much more activated on the issue. If you have, if you have 21% saying, this is a priority in 2013, and now it's 39%. That's um, that's pretty significant. And and obviously, years isn't isn't the only reason for this. There've been so many, so much good communication on climate change, and so much good political action, and so many bold leaders doing the right thing. Um, that and and also it's much and the science is just that much clearer, and the scientists are. Um, you know, finding ever more dire things. But, uh, you know, it seems that there's progress in the right direction. At least there has been up until so recently. 
All right, so I guess there's preaching to the choir and then there's enlarging the choir. So a couple different good things to keep in mind, especially for the folks who are telling sustainability stories every day. Associate Editor Anya Holomizer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lauren. Well, this being the first show of the year and all, I thought we would go around the horn and sort of bring in some of the Green Biz uh, editorial talent we have and to uh, talk about some of the stories and ideas and themes and memes that we'll be tracking in the year ahead. So, uh, Lauren Hepler, the senior writer, let's start with you. What's What are you looking at for 2017? So we've touched on a couple of these themes already, but one that I've been tracking and I think is just going to continue to be absolutely crazy in the year ahead is the transportation space. Um, So obviously you think about self-driving cars and drones, also a lot happening in commercial fleets, uh, planes, trains. It's really a dynamic space right now. But maybe what I'm most interested in is the nexus between transportation and energy. Um, And by that, I mean not only EVs and obviously the Tesla Solar City merger is a really interesting thing to watch here, how gains in energy storage can maybe be leveraged in both sectors, but also questions about how do you sort of deliver energy to people interested in taking advantage of more sustainable transportation systems. Uh, One thing I've heard floated by a couple people working in utilities in California is as we think about models like community power or community solar, can you then turn that into community EV charging and things like that. So I think that's going to be one thing to watch closely for pilot projects and hopefully things that turn into actual business ventures. Um, Closely related to transportation is the city space. And for me, this is probably the most interesting part of the climate action conversation. Um, We've got a story coming next week that will be an update with the folks over at 100 Resilient Cities, which is the Rockefeller Foundation spinoff that's been funding chief resilience officers, CROs in 100 cities around the world. And I think really what they symbolize is this question of how to follow through on sort of early stage recognition that, oh man, climate change is a serious potential shock to the system for cities in a lot of places. And how do you deal with that, especially in the context of longer simmering issues like income inequality or other sort of structural issues that cities are confronting. Um, But beyond that, I think it really reminds me of what we're seeing with the private sector, where there's sort of this question of whether companies will be able to expand beyond these very familiar faces like Google and Apple that we hear a lot about in the sustainability space. Um, And with cities, I think the question becomes, can you go beyond the Amsterdams and the San Francisco's and get get down into mid-sized markets? Rural markets are a big question mark and sort of expand gains in renewable energy and all these sorts of things. Um, finally, uh, I, food, very interested in food and not just because I'm hungry right now, but this is another field where rapid tech adoption is really changing the game quickly. Um, and I think it's a really good example of questions about how promising technologies will impact labor markets because you've got things like soft robotics that can be used for picking produce, um, which can obviously be really good for efficiency. Also things like precision agriculture, where you're using sensors to monitor fields and reduce 
reduce the amount of water or chemicals that are going into fields. Um, but it raises questions about what is the role of the farmer then? Um, also, lots of big financial questions in this space in terms of how big ag companies are bankrolling R&D efforts for smaller startups and also paying their smallholder farmers for long-term efforts. So no shortage of things to keep me busy. Uh, planes, trains, and autonomous vehicles, all electrified and cities and food. It sounds like a drive-in to me, doesn't it? Yeah, really. Like a super high-tech Jetsons one. I love it. Well, now let's turn to the newest member of our, of our editorial team, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser. Uh, Anya, you sort of uh, bring the Zen beginner's mind to this. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and uh, what you're thinking about for 2017. So I don't know how zen uh, the sustainability landscape is. There's just so much going on, lots to learn, lots to keep up with. And uh, it's not not the least of which is uh, the amount of data that's being produced by the Internet of Things. That's one thing that I will be on my radar in the coming year. I'm excited about its implications for renewable energy as uh, devices connect to each other and the grid becomes smarter. How will the Internet of Things help uh, renewable energy and solar energy efficiently get onto the grid? How are we going to be able to measure its impact, how much energy is being saved, how much money is being saved? Also, as a journalist, I'm interested in data collection. Um, There will be more data than ever that allows for better reporting on sustainability. It also has a huge ripple effect for ethics journalism, how are we going to leave stories out of the massive amounts of data that we're seeing? And uh, also another thing that I'm interested in is impact investing and putting your money where you want things to grow sustainably, of course. Numbers will definitely be talking under the Trump administration. And uh, I did just have a conversation with Erica Karp, uh, founder of Cornerstone Capital. And she brought up a very interesting point that we're actually undergoing the biggest wealth transfer in history right now. And where is that money going to go? Also, millennials who are now taking control of this money and are stewarding it, we no longer want, um, we don't want to just accumulate wealth. We want our wealth to have an impact. We're thinking about how it's going to affect future generations, how it's going to be able to fund projects that are good for the environment, how are, you know, we want also greater, we want greater transparency from companies. So I think that that will be uh, something that will definitely be not just on the sustainability radar in the coming year and a coming Trump administration, but on everyone's radar. I just moved to a new city. I moved to Oakland from New York City. So cities are on my mind um, and cities and subnational governments um, will be having more of a say in sustainability than ever before. For example, we've heard in the news recently, um, the Ohio Ohio's governor had uh, vetoed a renewable energy freeze that allowed utilities to avoid renewable investments for two years. Minneapolis was uh, was all featured on Green Biz for having a citizens centric approach to climate action with a huge demand for clarity and transparency. Florida recently said no to limiting rooftop solar expansion. Um, so those are. Um, states taking action on climate change. And also, I'm interested in how how cities are individually handling the issue around uh, sustainability, around dealing with climate change and creating new, um, better walkable versions of themselves. So uh, 
we'll definitely be looking out for that in the coming year too, as well as exploring San Francisco's own sustainability scene. Yeah, lots to look at both locally here in the Bay Area, but globally, I know with the 100 Resilient Cities and some of the endeavors um, you're alluding to as well, there's a, sort of a real international aspect to the subnational, the cities, states, what are all these regional governments going to be doing after the Paris Agreement and beyond? Great. Well, let's turn to New Jersey, where our senior writer, Heather Clancy, is standing by to tell us about what are you seeing for 2017, Heather? Hey there, guys. Um, so I, I'm i going to call upon one of our, my favorite venture capitalists' little uh, mantra, software is eating the world. And I'm going to apply it to my what my world is doing here. Um, and I'm going to step back a little bit. Uh, I'm really closely following artificial intelligence and the blockchain. So those are two kind of esoteric um, concepts that may not have a lot to do with uh, the average sustainability professional's um, daily life, but they should. I think what I think um, I see happening is many of the um, organizations that are are uh, hiring software developers and so forth to do things like handle e-commerce solutions are going to start looking at this um, to automate many of the concerns that would apply in the sustainability world. An example, I I'm, I'm, was reading something from the Harvard Business Review this morning, and it was about conflict minerals. Very simple example. But the headline is 80% of companies don't know if their products contain conflict minerals. The reason, it's just too darn complex, as Anya was saying before, to collect this data. So I, what I see happening is um, companies uh, inside and outside applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, to go out and collect much of this information that we need um, and to get it more automated. So that's, that's the first part of it. Part two, the blockchain. As, as I've written several times, there's many, many different applications that apply um, from the distributed grid to supply chain, um, to being able to to track the provenance of, of goods and so forth. Again, um, you need software talent to to, uh, to get this in place. So, so for me, that, that's number one. Um, software is eating the world. How does that apply in our world, in the in the world of um, green business? Um, as Anya also mentioned, we're getting into a place of connected everything. Um, and, you know, yes, we've, we've written about this for years. I've written about this for years. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say when I first wrote that term, Internet of Things, I'm not even going to mention it. But um, I'm starting to see some practical things happening. And a, an example just crossed my desk earlier this week. Um, Emerson, which has lots of uh, different technologies for commercial and residential uh, applications, um, including something called Insincorator. You, you might have heard of that, right? Your basic garbage disposal. They have a solution that they've been selling for some years where they collect um, food waste in kitchens. And at some point uh, in, in the past, basically what, a, what would happen is that someone come and pick these things up when they were full, or maybe they weren't full. So they would send collection folks out to, to pick them up. Now they're adding an Internet of Things connectivity to these devices. So the the, the slurry is full, and, and, and it can tell the guy, hey, come pick me up, um, no pun intended. Um, but, but there's some real practical applications emerging there, as well as in the buildings space. I do believe we've, we've been talking about a lot of pilots, right? This, the idea of smart buildings and sensors and so forth isn't new. However, I do believe we'll start actually seeing some – implementations at hotels, um, government agencies, and so forth, move out of pilot phase and into more of an um, 
uh, a real phase of, of commercial and, and application, you know, day-to-day -day use. The, the other thing that I'm following pretty closely is energy storage, the idea of, if you will, grid 2.x, you might want to call it, the, the technologies that are enabling distributed energy to be added to grid, um, including energy storage, these big batteries. I read a statistic earlier today um, from GTM Research 1,800 megawatts of new energy storage should come online by between now and 2021. So that may not seem a lot, maybe in the con in the scheme of utility of the utility world, but it is eight times larger than the total um, capacity that that was installed last year. So we're going to see an acceleration. Uh, I do believe, you know, with companies like Tesla, that the Gigafactory the is coming online this week. There was a big briefing there. Um, as well as some, some state mandates. Uh, we just saw Massachusetts earlier this week agree to introduce energy storage procurement targets. So it's not just California that's driving the, uh, these projects. It is now other states, and I do believe this is one of the areas that's actually a Republican um, uh, priority, is, is, is finding ways to use the energy that we're creating, uh, electricity that we are generating better and at, a, at the best possible times for for the consumers of of it, um, and not just residences, of course, I'm talking about businesses. So those are several of the things that I'm following. I'm going to throw it back to you, Joel. What are you thinking about? What have we missed? Glad you asked, Heather. Uh, uh, so, well, three things that I'm looking at. Um, one is carbon removal. This is something we've talked about uh, several times uh, on this show and at articles on GreenBiz. How do we turn carbon from a liability into an asset by building things with it, by making materials, fuels, uh, any number of things that also happen to have the added benefit of substituting for higher carbon intensive things like cement or aluminum or steel. Uh, there's, and, and those are just for the building market. There's carbon-based uh, products being developed uh, all across the supply chain and pack packaging and other things. And I think we're going to see a lot more really interesting carbon-based companies, carbon-based products, uh, maybe even carbon-based services. It really comes to how do we rebrand carbon to a certain extent? How do we stop thinking about it as a bad thing, uh, but as just a good thing, but in the wrong place? So carbon removal, I, I really believe, is going to be a fascinating story to watch. Another one, Traffic. Uh, we talked about cities, talked about the Internet, Internet of Things. We talked about autonomous, shared, connected electric vehicles. Traffic is really where all this you know, comes into play. Tra traffic management, the need for parking, and how all of these technologies come to play in something that we all know and do not love every single day, which is just getting around uh, and, and the implications for design, planning, land use, uh, taxes. I mean, how do we maintain roads if gas taxes go down because electric vehicles come? So there, there's so many aspects of this that I think sort of looking at traffic uh, as a place where so many different technologies uh, and needs come together, the whole infrastructure piece that we'll be talking about increasingly over the, the next few years in this, in the United States at least. So uh, carbon remo removal traffic. And the third one, and I can't believe none of you has yet uttered the word uh, Trump. Uh, you may have read that we have a new uh, sheriff in town or coming to town on January 20th. Uh, and what's going to happen here uh, from the through the lens of sustainable business? Now, how will the new administration catalyze um, uh, 
pushback or standing ground or activism or action or uh, investment uh, or innovation uh, on the part of, of the private sector, um, how will corporate step up and, and how will their CEOs step up or the C-suite leadership? Will they be heard in ways that they haven't yet and not just signing on to things, but maybe speaking up and showing up and standing up? Uh, in ways they hadn't before. You know, what will companies do beyond what they're already doing? Will they defend Paris and the uh, agreement and the clean power plan? These are going to be really interesting stories. And I I, I know this is going to be a lot of, uh, certainly at the heart of what, what we'll be covering over the next year is what does the new administration do to the world of sustainable business in the United States and frankly beyond? Those will be really interesting stories to watch. This week, I did the latest installment of what had been kind of a hiatus uh, series called Exit Interviews, where I interview sustainability veterans who are leaving their jobs to learn about uh, not just uh, who they are and, and what they did, but what they learned. Um, actually, I didn't. I noticed I hadn't done any during all of 2016, so starting off the new year with with an exit interview. This one of Mark Spears, who uh, just left uh, a couple weeks ago, left the Walt Disney Company after 29 years, serving as most recently as director of sustainable business practices. Um, and uh, it just was really interesting. It's always interesting to talk to these veterans and hear what they've gone through, what they've seen, and what they've learned. Um, and it's particularly interesting to talk to someone who has spent 29 years at the what self-proclaimed happiest place on earth. One thing that has intrigued me about Disney ever since I think uh, one of our Green Biz Executive Network meetings was when I heard about sort of just this crazy scope of work they do. You think about obviously the entertainment business, even like some the parks and down in Orlando, but also the food business and just all these other industries that you might not necessarily associate them with. And don't forget the cruise line. Right, right. Yeah, they they have a significant cruise business. Yeah, and and Mark in particular has worked on um, the the uh, labor issues related to the Disney licensed products. Now, you, we've all seen, you know, Mickey Mouse toys and Donald Duck toys and, and Cinderella, whatever. Uh, but uh, and then, of course, whatever the latest show is. But you probably don't realize that. And this is uh, has this was Mark told me this uh, years ago. And, I, and it stuck with me that there are Disney licensed products on every aisle of Walmart. Mm, well, <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and totally about a, a, a six or seven thousand different suppliers and a million and a half SKUs or specific products. Um, and so that's a lot of things. And, and you know, Disney doesn't necessarily scream it from Magic Mountain, but, uh, you know, they have a really, uh, I think, leadership program around sustainability, corporate responsibility. They've been doing a lot of things for a lot of years that are kind of at the head of the pack, certainly in the hospitality industry and in the entertainment industry. Um, and, you know, they are this really not just an iconic brand, but such a squeaky, pardon the expression, squeaky clean uh, iconic brand that, you know, you really have to police the workforce more than just about anyone else. Because, you know, these are, these are, you don't have to mention all of the Disney characters that are near and dear 
to us or our kids or grandkids or whomever, but you know, we don't want them being associated with sweatshops or pollution or other uh, environmental or sustainability sins. It's definitely an interesting line to walk being such a a visible brand out in the world. And obviously, in some cases, that can make you a target uh, from activist groups and GOs. Uh, So curious, is that something that came up in your conversation, Joel, in terms of how you operate in a climate like that? Well, that's certainly the case. You know, we've seen this before, the McDonald's, the Coca-Cola's. Uh, the Nikes, uh, the, the companies that stick their neck out often get fired at first. And Disney, uh, again, with its squeaky clean image, has certainly been a target. Um, you know, it's been interesting. One of the things I think they figured out how to do, uh, as a lot of companies are, uh, is partner, whether it's with uh, NGOs or, or local governments or uh, their uh, peer companies or even companies in other sectors. So, for example, uh, one of the things that Mark talked about, and, and I think he's probably most proud of is something called Project Kaleidoscope, which is a collaboration that um, Disney did with, among others, McDonald's and the activist group uh, across the street from us here in Oakland, as you saw, um, to is a collaboration designed to promote sustained compliance with labor standards um, mandated by corporate codes of conduct for manufacturers. So they had they took on 10 contractor facilities in southern China that produced goods for McDonald's restaurants and Disney licensees. And they collaborated on on how do you, you know, promote and enhance long-term uh, compliance with the, the labor codes. And I think that's what is is where this is, has gone. In fact, I, I asked Mark to sort of talk about how things have changed over his time and and weigh in on sort of what's shifted for him over the years. Here's what he had to say. When you look at the sort of the manufacturing side of the equation, I go back even to when I started uh, leading the our ILS efforts, international labor standards efforts, a number of years ago. I think it's it, it and this probably is a so- somewhat common thread across a number of other spectrums with corporate responsibility. You know, many of us started out in very much the mode of prescription. This is what is expected. This is what needs to happen. These are the consequences if it doesn't happen. To uh, this is much bigger than any individual or individual company or individual organization or even individual nation. Um, and has really become a, a much more collaborative effort towards common goals and values. You know, it's it's not enough that we believe that working conditions sh- should be, you know, maintained in a certain fashion, but it's that, you know, there are a variety of variables that go into that equation. There are a number of customers. There's uh, a number of influences to that. And it's really about identifying those various stakeholders, if you will, or participants or actors, whatever word you want to use, um, and really trying to bring them all to the table and understanding their perspective and understanding what the quid pro quo is for achieving our, our goals and also making sure that they're, they're engaged in the process and they feel that they're receiving some value out of it. Uh, I know when we started our ILS program in 1996 and, and created the, the code that actually uh, lives to today, um, I think there was probably a sense that we we could tell people what was necessary and it would simply happen, and it didn't. Uh, and it was really about how do you bring all of these parties to the table um, and how do you make sure everybody walks away with something. So it sounds like a certain amount of your job has to do a little bit of a United Nations, uh, both in terms of literally 
working with uh, with countries and getting into local politics, but also in terms of trying to bring the parties together uh, in order to to come up with with solutions. Is that first of all, is that an apt description? Yeah, I'd say less about politics per se. It seems to be a hot button uh, these days, um, and and more about recognizing that I, you know, at the end of the day, there are common sets of objectives and values that you can find regardless of the of the stakeholder. And uh, I think it's that's the the key part is finding that intersection. And I, I'd say the UN thing is is probably a fairly apt description. I mean, in the end, it's. Um, it's less about ownership and responsibility and more about accountability and influence, being able to influence parties positively for, for everyone's benefit. And one really excellent footnote on this story, Joel, you, you somehow dug up the information that actually everything in his personal life is reused. How did you possibly know that? Well, I won't reveal my sources, Lauren, but it, it, it turns out that that. Mark Spears, the guy who's in, char- in charge of at least compliance for the licenses for these six or 7,000 companies that make these million and a half Disney licensed products that, let's face it, are, are not necessarily essential to 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 life. But himself is has this anti-materialistic streak. He and his family, they shop at places like Goodwill. They you know, he says even our dogs are recycled through Boxer Rescue LA. He says we're probably not the picture of the consummate consumer in the traditional sense. Um, and uh, that's to put it lightly. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, they they drive their cars to 200,000 miles. He said, we chose our schools for our kids based in many respects on their social values as much as the education that they receive. So, uh, and, and he's, you know, obviously not one to judge uh, what others want to buy, but he lives his life in a sort of a different way than uh, you would think for someone who was part of making what he does. So that was pretty refreshing. So since this is our first episode of 2017, it also happens to be an ideal time to run down a very busy slate of events for the year ahead. So first and foremost, we've got a free webcast coming up January 24th on five things to know about choosing smarter solar. Tune into that. You can get information by going to greenbiz.com events. We've also got several other things a long time in the making coming down the pike. On January 31st, we will release our 10th annual State of Green Business Report. And then from February 14th to 16th, why not get away from the cold and spend your Valentine's Day in the desert at Green Biz 17, our annual gathering of sustainability executives in Phoenix. In May, we'll release our survey on surveys and reporting so anybody who is dealing with survey fatigue will definitely want to tune in for that and then this spring we'll also release our second edition of the green biz 30 under 30 june 20th through 22nd we'll head to hawaii for verge hawaii uh, that will take place in honolulu looking at the state's quest to go 100 percent renewable then we'll head back to silicon valley september 18th through 21st for Verge 17 in Santa Clara, looking at the convergence of sustainability and technology. Finally, in November, we'll release our NGO report. So full slate of events. Again, you can check them all out by going to greenbiz.com and clicking the events tab at the top of the page. 
That's a busy year, and that's uh, what we'll wrap up for this week, our 350 podcast. As uh, Lauren said, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find all of that information and many other links to the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our intrepid podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. Send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Uh, And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, have a great day.